Science Fantasy Science Podcast. My name is Rosie, and I am hosting with my brother, Chris. On this podcast, we discuss some of the biology and physics in our favorite science fiction and fantasy books. Today, we'll be talking about Going Postal by Terry Pratchett, which is set in Discworld, which my brother will give you some background on. Yeah, so Terry Pratchett is a very famous British author, and he wrote this very large series called Discworld. And Discworld is uh, very much a thing of satire. So I wonder actually if, actually if it's inspired by Flatland. Did you have to read that in geometry class? Geometry? Yeah. No. In, in eighth grade geometry, we had to write, we had to read this book called Flatland, which was satire in the Victorian era, but taught us about shapes. Never heard of it. So yeah, I sort of suspect Discworld was, uh, had something to do with Flatland. But anyway, back mm-hmm. to Discworld. So it is set somewhere between the Middle Ages and the modern day, modern day, depending on the particular story and the location. And let's start with the world as a whole. So Discworld is a disc, as the name suggests. And um, this disc is riding or sitting on top of the back of four elephants who are themselves sitting or riding on the back of a giant turtle which is swimming through cosmic space. So this is the type of (laughs) physics that we're dealing with. It's obviously, it's not really science fiction, but it's it's more just like uh, ludicrous in some sense, but clearly has science in mind. So That's why we like it. I mean, we like it for a lot of reasons. It's really good. (laughs) (laughs) But, okay, so there's this large disc, and it's flat, as discs are. are. And uh, on the disc are many different countries, but the most advanced of those countries is a city or a city-state called Ankh-Morpork. And Ankh-Morpork is supposed to be loosely based around London, and Ankh-Morporkians are... Um, they have uh, tendencies to be not very intelligent, but to be very trendy. So they like assembling in crowds and yelling out things. And it's all, it's, it's all stuff that Terry Pratchett can't say about his fellow Londoners, but it's okay to say in a fantasy world. Uh, and it's really funny. So uh, some things about the world of Discworld. There is magic that's involved. But it is seldom used because it's often quite dangerous and detrimental to the users of magic. And there are also, in Ankh-Morpork, uh, it's ruled by a patrician. So he is uh, a dictator, but he's a dictator who realizes that the best way to stay a dictator is to keep people happy. So he is very efficient and bureaucratic. Uh, and he manages... a number of guilds, such as the Assassin's Guild and the Alchemist Guild and the Thieves Guild. In Ankh-Morpork, if you do not pay your Thieves Guild rent, then it means that thieves can, um, can steal from your house. However, if non-licensed thieves steal from your house, then the Thieves Guild chases them down. So, I don't know. It's, is it better or worse than our system? Probably worse, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so there are all these little quirks uh, about Ankh-Morpork, which are really fun. And Going Postal 
talks a little bit about um, an aspect of the modernization of the city. And Rosie will talk a little bit now about the story. Yes. So going postal, it centers around the character of Moist von Lichtweg and a little, not disclaimer, but like content advisory. We will be saying the word moist a lot. (laughs) (laughs) What is that, a content advisory? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Terry is excellent in naming his, <laughs> his characters. Yes, so Moist von Ludwig begins the book actually as a different character named Alfred Spangler. That is an assumed name, and he is being hanged under that name for his many crimes, but... Uh, so what are his crimes? Would you like me to read them to you? Okay, yeah, I would. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> Moist stared ahead while the roll call of his crimes was read out. He couldn't help feeling that it was so unfair. He'd never so much as tapped someone on the head. He'd never even broken down a door. He had picked locks on occasion, but he'd always locked them again behind him. (laughs) Apart from all those repossessions, bankruptcies, and sudden insolvencies, what had he actually done that was bad as such? He'd only been moving numbers around. That's how Moist von Lipwig views his crimes. But anyway, he's being hanged for them. As Alfred Spangler, he hasn't used the name Moist uh, von Ludwig since he was a teenager, I think. But after he is uh, supposedly hanged, he wakes up in the office of Lord Veterinary. The patrician. The patrician. And Veterinary somehow knows his name, his real name, Moist von Ludwig, and offers him a job as the postmaster. We say offers him a job, but there's no real choice. So... Well, there was. He could commit suicide. Yeah, the other choice was death, and he already died, so... He didn't want to do it again. (laughs) Yeah. So, Moist becomes the postmaster, and... He is tasked with rejuvenating the outdated service of the post, but of course this is Terry Pratchett, so it's not just an outdated service, it is... Collapsing in shambles. Yes. (laughs) Literally and metaphorically. So, in the Discworld, the competition of the post is something called the clacks, uh, as opposed to cell phones, but... The Klax has a series of towers that is able to transmit messages not as fast as phone calls, but much, much faster than the post. I guess like telegraphs. Yeah, so basically there are towers and they shine um, a pattern of lights and then the next tower sees the pattern and retransmits it to the next tower. So the slogan for the Klax is it travels as fast as light. But it, it's actually quite a bit slower because they have to retransmit it every time there's a tower. Light plus human competency. Yeah. Anyway, a message that would travel a few weeks, no, two months by coach should take a few hours by clacks, basically. Yes. But anyway, Moist, what starts as an attempt to clear out his office so that he has a place to sleep at night 
turns into a full-on revamping of the post office and he ends up being in competition with the clocks towers and that is the main conflict of the story now the clocks is problematic for a number of reasons my personal opinion of the most problematic is that people are dying and um no one seems to be overly concerned besides uh the people that knew them but people are just randomly falling off of towers basically the workers for the company yes yes the clax workers are falling off of towers there was a change in management a few months back associated with some shady numbers and words shifting around and moist becomes acquainted with the family that originally was the genius behind the clocks technology but they were just not very good businessmen and got out maneuvered but the new owners do not care about maintenance or the integrity of the towers and are just pushing things through as fast as possible which is causing breakdowns and lots of problems but they are it's led by one very skilled businessman slash con man so that's who moist ends up being pitted against and in the meantime moist discovers his own sense of integrity and not wanting to end up like this guy who has been responsible for so many deaths because moist uh feels that he his crimes were more innocent but he is coming to grips with the fact that his moving around of numbers actually had real consequences for real people and that is the thrust of the book one more thing about the clacks the re- there are two reasons that Venari the patrician doesn't like it and puts moist in this competition uh the first is that he cannot play thud which is the discworld version of chess with his fellow ruler in some distant city because the clax breaks down too often and the second is that it's really expensive compared to when it was under the other family and so that's hurting the economic outlook for Ankh-Morpork. pork and it's expensive because it's being mismanaged and it's a monopoly yeah so they can charge as much as they want and it, but I mean, it was technically a monopoly before, but yes. it wasn't as expensive because they were just charging as much as it took to maintain. Whereas now, it's the costs have gone up in part because the new owners are solely concerned with making a profit, and in part because the just like it's just not being maintained properly, so repairs are expensive. Right. Cool. So should we move on to my section? Yes. All right. So I'm going to talk about the physics of light on the disc. Uh, and to start with, start off with, I want to just give some quotes showing how Terry Pratchett in this book and in other books in the series uh, does this really nice anthropomorphizing of objects. Um, so here's a quote from Going Postal. 
the patrician is talking. He's in a meeting with some other people, and he says, I'm very glad to hear it, Mr. Veterinary began. Crispin horsefly, horse fry, my lord, and I don't like the tone of your questioning. For a moment, it seemed that even the chairs themselves edged away from him. So usually we think of like people edging away from somebody, but in this case, it was actually the chairs that edged away. And I really love when uh, Terry Pratchett does this kind of thing. And he also does it with light. So here's another quote. This is Moist entering a dark shop. Uh, a voice said, hands where I can see them, mister. He raised his hands cautiously while peering into the gloom. There was definitely a crossbow being wielded by a dim figure. Such light as had managed to get around the boards glinted off the tip of the bolt. So the crossbow is being wielded by Adora Bell Deerheart, uh, who's another wonderful, wonderfully named character in this book. But what I want to focus on here is the fact that the light um, manages to get around the boards. So this is not how light works in our world. In our world, light travels in straight lines and doesn't manage anything. But in Terry Pratchett's world, it slips around corners and the like. And one of the results is that disc light is heavier and slower than normal light. Uh, and I think he says lazy at some point. And this, I mean, this seems sort of absurd from a physics perspective, but it actually makes a little bit of sense. So um, the heavier an object is, the slower it can go, according to the law of special relativity. So in particular, light is the fastest thing in the universe because it has zero mass. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you increase the mass of something, like something that weighs just a little bit more than light is the neutrino, and the neutrino travels just a little bit slower than light. Mm -hmm. So the more something weighs, the slower it travels. Um, but disk light is heavy, so it travels more slowly. But is it actually heavy, or is it just the description of it that's heavy? So it's unclear. But he, he does call it... I mean, he calls it lazy, so I, I think he, he has this in mind when he says that it's heavy. I think he has this relationship in mind, but I don't think he's actually thinking, oh, well, the uh, disk photon weighs, you know, uh, one thousandth of an electron or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, on the one hand, he's giving light these properties that humans have, like humans are sometimes heavy and slow. But on the other hand, it actually relates to physics, to particle physics in a very straightforward way. Uh, so here is another quote. This is from Mort, which is a different book, uh, but it also deals with light, so I'm including it here. Uh, light on the disc world isn't like light elsewhere. It's grown up a bit, it's been around. It doesn't feel the need to rush everywhere. It knows that however fast it goes, darkness always gets there first, so it takes it easy. So this is more of the same thing. He, he's assigning to light this suave nature. <laughs> in that quote, he says light isn't like, or light in the disc world isn't like other light in the universe. He, yeah, he says light in the disc world isn't like light elsewhere. Like light elsewhere. Yeah. So w would it be plausible to say that like when light passes through the atmosphere of Discworld, like, it becomes heavier? 
I think, I mean, Discworld doesn't really have a sun, so I think the light is magical light. Okay, so it just by its nature is heavier than, like, sunlight. Yeah. But there are still days and nights. Yeah, so I don't know exactly how this works, but he explains this partially with the heaviness of light. Like, at some point he says that light seeps into valleys and then seeps out at night. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I, I... I don't really know how the mechanics of it works. And I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think there is the appearance of a sun in the sky. I'm remembering this from Mort. But, yeah, somehow this this is all supposed to work together. Okay. I mean, I just assumed there was a sun because... Well, it is a disc. Actually, the in the first... Or actually, in some part of Lord of the Rings... The world is a disc and there, there's a sun that orbits it so that could be possible in Discworld too but I sort of don't think so because the disc is on top of you know an elephant. the elephants <laughs> and then the turtle <laughs> so in order to have a sun it would have to have a quite a weird trajectory in order to have a sun a light and a day and night cycle that were evenly split mm-hmm. plus the tortoise is swimming through the universe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I, again, I think that the disc light has a magical origin. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I'm, and I'm not saying that human wizards are making the light, right. but somehow the creator of the disc, who is mentioned sometimes, made disc light, and he made like, it come from a sun-like thing. Light is, like, internally produced on the world as opposed to shining from a celestial body yeah i think that's true Mm -hmm. yeah and this light is slightly heavier than some than uh, starlight yeah slightly or much heavier yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah interesting yeah so here is another quote about light uh but this quote also has other particle physics uh in it so I'm just including this to show that Terry Pratchett loves to joke about all sorts of physics, which is one of the reasons that I enjoy reading him so much, because, like, there'll be in the middle of, like, a sword battle or a magic battle, and then he'll make some joke about, like, electrons or something. Anyway, here we go. Practically anything can go faster than disc light, which is lazy and tame, unlike ordinary light. So here he's saying there's ordinary light, but disc light is lazy and tame in comparison. What do you think ordinary light is? Like electricity? Yes. But we there's no electricity on the disc as far as I've read. I haven't read all the books, but I've never heard of any electricity. Mm, candlelight. Yeah. I don't know. But that's a good point. Maybe it's maybe candlelight or like torchlight or something travels at normal speed of light whereas the disc light from the sun or whatever it is like whatever makes day yeah maybe that travels slowly and is lazy and tame can you go back to the adora bell quote yeah yeah uh a voice said hands where i can see them mister he raised his hands cautiously while peering into the gloom there was definitely a crossbow being wielded by a dim figure such light as it managed to get around the boards glinted off the top of the bolt 
so the light is coming from outside as opposed to being like a torch inside yes that's true so in that case that is like the the heavier version whereas i can't exactly remember but it seems like most of the descriptions that you've had of the heavy light has been this sort of like atmospheric light as opposed to a candle or fire yeah that makes sense which I mean, and I could also see it being something where all light on the disc world is weighed down somehow. But yeah, like there's a magical field. Or yeah, something. but it seems like that's not the case because he has he sets up a comparison. Yeah, though he could just be comparing it to the normal world because he often, you know, references something from like twentieth century London. Does he? Not, not often, but he's done it. He does it sometimes. Like, particularly with behavior. Like, if he's... Ugh, I don't have a quote available. But he'll, like, say something, and then he'll say, like... That's like when so-and-so goes to the coffee shop and then doesn't buy anything. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I don't really recall that, but... So, I don't know if that's the exact quote, but, like, something about... That would fit into our modern life more than it would fit into Ankh-Morpork. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I've definitely not heard coffee mentioned in Going Postal. Read the watch. There's a lot of coffee. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, anyway, so I'm going to go back to this quote. Practically anything can go faster than disc light, which is lazy and tame, unlike ordinary light. The only thing known to go faster than ordinary light is monarchy, according to the philosopher Lee Tin Weedle. <laughs> he reasoned like this. You can't have more than one king, and tradition demands that there is no gap between kings, so when a king dies, the succession must therefore pass the heir instantaneously. You following me? I am. Yeah. So, this is actually a hotly debated topic in quantum mechanics. Not the monarchy bit. (laughs) Okay. But, yeah, okay, I'll keep going for now, but I'll explain it later. Presumably, he said... There must be some elementary particles, kingons, or possibly quions, <laughs> that do this job. But of course, succession sometimes fails if, in mid-flight, they strike an antiparticle or a republican. <laughs> His ambitious plan to use this discovery to send messages involving the careful torturing of a small king in order to modulate the signal or <laughs> never... Fully expounded upon because at that point the bar closed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so let me try and explain. I mean, obviously this is very funny, but let me try and explain the physics behind it. Okay. So, in quantum mechanics, we know that you can entangle two particles. Uh, And when you entangle two particles, the state of one particle is related to the state of another particle. Usually we talk about spins. So let's say if one is spin up, the other is spin down. Now, if you take this, the particles really far apart and you measure one and it's spin up, then the other must be spin down. And people have claimed, depending on your interpretation of quantum mechanics, if you believe that the speed of light is a real constant, then this is a non-local, or sorry, this is a local non-deterministic theory. On the other hand, if the speed of light can be, uh, if something can go faster than the speed of light, like in this case, the kingons or quions would, be, would go faster than the speed of light because they travel instantaneously. 
in that case, we would have a theory where the particles have a definite spin, but it's non-local. So the message can go faster than, so the information can go faster than light. And in this case, it's possible to send information faster than the speed of light. And so people talk about, you know, carefully manipulating an electron uh, or some such particle like Lee Tin Weedle thinks about carefully torturing a small king <laughs> in order to, to accomplish faster than light communication. A small king. <laughs> so uh, most physicists think that this is uh, impossible. They think that the quantum mechanics is actually a theory of probabilities and that therefore you can never transmit a signal faster than the speed of light. So in their interpretation of quantum mechanics, how to put this? <laughs> I, I don't think I can give a reasonable allegory for the king example. <laughs> Maybe there are like lots of kings and some of the kings die with a certain probability and some of the kings succeed them with another probability. And the probabilities work out just so, so that they're always the correct number of kings. Why don't you try it without the allegory? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So most physicists think that when you measure the first particle, there's no effect on the second particle. And there's just these probabilities that determine the spin. So there's... It just always works out. It just always works out somehow. Yeah, so there's no communication between the two particles, but however you measure them, they seem to be always opposite. But it's not that they're communicating. There's no signal sent. They're just, somehow, they're always opposite. And it's because of, like, the probabilities and the way quantum mechanics works. Mm. Yeah. So the big take-home from this, from this is that fast and light communication, not possible with our current theory of physics or our current interpretation of our current theory of physics. So the inheritance is not passed down instantaneously. Well, I mean, in Terry Pratchett's world, all bets are off. <laughs> <laughs> in Terry Pratchett's world, it's possible that monarchy is a non-local hidden variable theory, in which case it is passed instantaneously. All right. Yeah. I mean, light is also slow, so... Yeah, so maybe it's it travels at the speed of... Well, he says it does travel instantaneously. So that's faster than the normal speed of light. Yeah. As well as faster than the disk light. Yeah. So anyway, my, my point is that he has these like ridiculous things that he writes, but actually there is a lot of thinking that he does related to particle physics and special relativity and these types of things. But going back to light, as uh, Rose told us in the intro section, the main conflict in this book is between the post office and the clacks. And the clacks towers use light to uh, send their message. So I mentioned earlier that their sort of tagline is messages delivered at the speed of light. But if light is really slow, <laughs> then maybe that's not very fast. So I think this is one of the implicit jokes in the whole storyline of the book. And actually, 
the light that they're sending from Clax Tower to Clax Tower is is coming from light bulbs. Right. Yeah. So in that case, maybe all light on the disc is slow. That was one thing that I was wondering about. Like, they do it differently at night and during the day, right? Right, yeah. So, during the day, I don't think there's any light involved. They just, they have, you know, like, squares that they hang up in a certain pattern. And the next clock tower looks at the pattern and then they transmit it. But at night, they have to light up the array and then they put squares over it. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's how they did it in the TV show. There is a TV show. I did not know that. Oh, yeah. There is a TV show. It's just two episodes long. And it does some things very well and some things not very well. So let's leave it at that. <laughs> how do you think it does with the Clax Towers? Uh, they don't look particularly realistic in their layout. But, like, yeah, I think they're, they're great. Okay. Yeah, I think they do it reasonably well. And they also have one scene there that's not in the book where, like, when you send a clax, presumably you go up to the counter and you give the message, and then they say, okay, we'll send this. And maybe they read the message. And in the TV show, they have this old woman go up and be like, oh, can you please send this to Stolot? And the guy reads the message, and it's like, you guys better pay up or you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) And he looks at the woman, and she's like, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, one of the one of the jokes about the whole book is that Clax delivers messages at the speed of light, but light is slow. But it's still faster than a horse. It's still definitely faster than a horse. Because, as you said... Even Bruno. As you said in the introduction, something that would take a carriage, like two months, would take Clax a matter of hours. Yeah. So. Yeah, still very fast. But this also got me thinking about the shape of a disc. Uh, and I think there's another sort of implicit joke here because discs are flat and we live on a sphere. The earth is round. Now to see all the way across a flat disc, if the air is perfectly clear and there are no mountains, you only need two clax towers. But on the earth, you would need multiple, you would need more than two clax towers to get around the earth. Right? Right. Yeah. So... I did the calculation about if you assume that the Clax Towers are 100 meters tall, which is a bit tall, but anyway, uh, how many Clax Towers does it take you to get all the way around the Earth, assuming perfectly clear weather at the equator, no mountains? So, in fact, uh, Clax Towers can see 71.5 kilometers between two towers, and that means you need 562 of them to get all the way around the Earth. So, Which seems like an incredibly low number to me. But. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is assuming that, like, when you are in your 100-meter tower, you look out at the horizon, and instead of the horizon, you just see a tiny little dot, like, okay. right, right above the horizon, which is another 100-meter Clax Tower, like, really far away. Okay. Yeah. But my point is that 562 is much larger than 2. So in completely flat, on a completely flat surface, in completely clear conditions, no elevation, no clouds, you can see indefinitely? Yeah, if it's completely clear. So what does that mean? That means 
that there are no particles in the air. You just have pure oxygen, nitrogen, whatever. Uh, and there's no wind. So that's, I mean, that would never happen in real life. Okay. But if that were to happen on the disc, you could see all the way across. Does he ever give us numbers on Clax Towers? Uh, he does there are way more than two. Yeah, so there, to get, like, from there to Stowat, which is fairly nearby, uh, it's, yeah, it's more than two. I think it's, like, five to ten. So, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember. It's definitely more than a hundred towers in the Grand Trunk. But I forget the exact number. Because he does give us some numbers of the towers up in the mountains. And it's somewhere in the hundreds. But I think this is, again... This, this is just, like, this clever little joke that Terry Pratch puts, puts in. Like, what are the advantages of a flat world versus a spherical world? Well, you can see as far as you want. So then he came up with this company that operated these things called clacks, which were operated based on looking very far away. So, yeah, that is the conclusion of my section. So on the clacks towers... This is, I guess, a quote akin to the one about the king-ons and queen-ons. Queen-ons, yeah. Queen-ons. So, so Moist is just sort of thinking about the clacks and the advancement of technology that they represent. And I guess sort of one thing that I like about what Pratchett does is like sort of the blend of like technology and magic in that like it is pretty magical when you think about it even if it has an explanation so about the clax towers he's he says ordinary men had dreamed it up and put it together building towers on rafts in swamps and in cross the frozen spines of the mountains they'd cursed and worse used logarithms they'd waded through rivers and dabbled in trigonometry they hadn't dreamed in the way people usually use the word, but they'd imagined a different world and bent metal around it. And out of all the sweat and swearing and mathematics had come this, dropping words across the world as softly as starlight. That's what I have to say about clacks. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a nice vision of how technology progresses. Even if it's selling the... I mean, he's acknowledging that there's sweating and cursing, but... Probably there's a lot of sweating and cursing and failure involved with that. Yeah. I guess also what this has to do is like Moise is sort of contemplating what is magic and what is human effort. Mm-hmm. So so before that quote that I just read, he, he's he's thinking to himself, what was magic after all but something that happened at the snap of a finger? Where was the magic in that? It was mumbled words and weird drawings in old books, and in the wrong hands it was as dangerous as hell, but not one half as dangerous as it could be in the right hands. The universe was full of the stuff. It made the stars stay up and the feet stay down. And then and then he says, but what was happening now, this was magical. And then he goes on to talk about the ordinary men who had dreamed and put up the Clax Towers. Gotcha. And... I, I mean, I think he's making a distinction between what is magic and what is magical, mm. as well as sort of just, like, breaking down what it, what it really means to call something magic, as opposed to just, like, something you don't understand. Yeah, right. So. So, on to you? Well, 
I have some questions about physics. Oh yeah, bring them on. Well, something that I really loved about this book, which I think is probably unique to this book because it's about the post office and letters, is the the power of creation in words, and it's particularly the written word. So there's like this suggestion that written words have the capacity to alter the universe and alter the physical nature of the universe. So actually I have a nice quote that relates to that. I may have it as well, but okay. go ahead. Every undelivered message is a piece of space-time that lacks another end, a little bundle of effort and emotion floating freely. Pack millions of them together and they do what letters are meant to do. They communicate and change the nature of events. When there is enough of them, they distort the universe around them. Yep, that was the one I was about to read. Oh, awesome. <laughs> so, like, the thing here is that the concentration of unread letters allows Moist to sort of travel in time back to when the letters were written or conceived of. And, it's, and this is related to why the post office went by the wayside or became abandoned and packed with unread letters in the first place but like just this idea that like letters can or that words and messages distort space time reality itself thoughts yeah so the imagery that he uses in a couple places is that of gravity or general relativity is our modern theory of gravity uh, and in general relativity if you have stuff with mass like matter like me or you or a rock or hydrogen it warps the space-time around it and that warping of space-time uh, attracts other things to it so if you have two rocks traditionally in Newtonian gravity we think of them having forces acting them acting on them and being attracted to each other but in general relativity, they warp the space-time around them such that they fall down towards each other. And in this book, Terry Pratchett is using this imagery to say that the, the letters, individually, one letter may warp space-time only a tiny amount. But if you put hundreds of thousands of letters into this post office building, then they can really change the nature of space-time and they can actually in this instance allow moist to travel back in time of course in general relativity you can't travel back in time you can travel forward in time but that's details that's just amazing i love it <laughs> well i will talk a little bit now about the evolution of magical creatures awesome <laughs> tell me more <laughs> So in Discworld, generally, we have werewolves, dwarves, trolls, golems, gnomes, zombies, vampires, and other things. Gnomes? So in this book, there are only a few key magical creatures that play a large role but there is a quote that sort of lists everything all of the creatures that are on 
the watch, which I think gives a good summary okay. of cool. uh, what exists in Discworld. So the watch apparently has loads of dwarves and trolls. It also has a golem and a couple of gnomes, a zombie, and even a knobs. <laughs> that knobs is not... <laughs> that's just a guy. That's Corporal Knobs. He's... <laughs> Not not quite human is the joke there. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently he has a certificate. <laughs> but anyway, the werewolf is mentioned a few times. There's a lawyer named uh, Mr. Slant who apparently had been to zombie for many years but the change in habits between life and death had not been marked. That was just a one-liner on zombie lawyers. <laughs> but the main... Um, Make sure mom's not listening. <laughs> <laughs> the main uh, creature that plays a role here is the banshee, Mr. Grile. So, sorry, we're going to interrupt you quickly. We were talking earlier about coffee. Yes. Yes. Vampires in Discworld crave coffee. If they can't get their coffee, they start sucking blood. At night or during the day? All times of the... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Anyway, continue. So, one neat thing that Pratchett does, among all the neat things that we've already mentioned, is that he incorporates, like, mythical creatures into his worlds in very sort of methodical ways. So the traits that they are associated with in myth have some sort of use, like the werewolf on the watch can sniff things out pretty well. She turns into a dog wolf pretty often. And presumably the zombie nature of Mr. Slant makes him a good lawyer. But also, he does get a little bit into the natural history of these mythical creatures as well. And sort of like explains their habits and natures in terms of evolution or what like sort of evolutionary pressures may have you know, produced a being that is part wolf, part human, for example. Mm -hmm. And the one that plays the role, the biggest role in this book is the Banshee, Mr. Grile, who we don't know at first is a Banshee. Um, The first description is by Reacher Gilt. He's uh, preparing to give Mr. Grile his next task and sort of musing to himself on the benefits of hiring a creature like Grail, who we don't know what he is yet, but he says, you never blackmail you because such an attempt would be the first move in a game that would almost certainly end in death for somebody. If Mr. Grail found himself in such a game, he'd kill right away without further thought in order to save time and assumed that anyone else would too. Presumably he was insane by the usual human standards, but it was hard to tell. The phrase, differently normal, might do instead. After all, Grail could probably defeat a vampire within ten seconds and had none of a vampire's vulnerabilities, except perhaps an inordinate fondness for pigeons. (laughs) 
So we learn, uh, we learn about Mr. Grile's nature here and sort of the way he thinks, like he doesn't really do abstraction and he doesn't do mind games. He's a very direct thinker. But at the same time, he, it's not just sort of like an instinctual thing where you could train like a hunting dog to kill something for you based off of smell or whatever. He does have like the cognition of a human to conceptualize and identify individuals. But because of the evolutionary, differential evolution of a banshee versus a vampire, they're useful for hiring for different tasks. The Mm -hmm. way you might hire a a carpenter versus an electrician. Gotcha, yeah. (laughs) Which does not really attune to the evolution thing because (laughs) electricians (laughs) and carpenters do not evolve. But, um... But I know what you mean. You're, you're saying that. Or you might you might use a mule for a different task than you would use an ox. Yes, gotcha. <laughs> I'll cut out the bit about the carpenter and the electrician. I guess because what I was saying was like because. Because those are professions. Like, yeah. Sort of like a banshee is sort yeah. of a profession. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a blend between, an animal and a human because it, yeah. because they've got. They're more specialized than your average professional yeah. because they have evolved certain traits and proclivities. Right. So then later when Moist is encountering the Banshee and thinking about the best approach to hunting it or to uh, fighting it, he thinks to himself, it helped if you thought of banshees as the only humanoid race that had evolved the ability to fly in some lush jungle somewhere where they'd hunted flying squirrels. It didn't help much. They hunted flying squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Continue. I forgot that. <laughs> it didn't help much if you knew why the story went that hearing the scream of the banshee meant that you were going to die. It meant that the banshee was tracking you. No good looking behind you. It was overhead. So, in in this quote it's like he explains the mythology of the banshee and brings in sort of like a natural history to it which i just really like so hold on so the banshee is flying above the flying squirrel right and then he screams downwards at the flying squirrel and then the flying squirrel is terrified and like drops out of the air is that how it goes so the Screaming is part of why people are afraid of banshees. I'm not sure that it really had an effect on on the squirrels. The squirrels. Okay. I mean, it must have been part of the hunting strategy because typically birds of prey don't want to be detected by their prey. Uh-huh. And a scream would pretty much give that away. Right. But it could be that the banshee is so fast that by the time it screams, you're out of luck. Mm, I see. Or it could be that the scream paralyzes the prey or something, like as you were saying. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm not very familiar with banshees. Yeah, so 
a little bit later, uh, Banshee has the, or Moist has the Banshee in a kind of a tough spot, but he's by no means out of the situation, so he's observing Mr. Grile. Um, he says, for Banshee, everything was in the pounce, when teeth, claws, and body weight all wore down at once. Now, bewildered, he strutted back and forth, trying to deal with the situation. Instinct, emotion, and some attempt at rational thought all banged together in Grile's overheated head. <laughs> Instinct one. Leaping at things with your claws out had worked for a million years, so why stop now? <laughs> so. That sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it doesn't work in Mr. Grile's case, but you can really like see how a humanoid bird bat like animal of prey could have evolved in Terry Pratchett's Discworld I feel yeah comments cool <laughs> I mean with our current like the way we make bones and stuff it is it possible to have like a human being with wings that would the way we make bones <laughs> I had no idea what you meant <laughs> Like, you may mean like the way fetuses develop. No, 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 like like the way how with how strong our bones are. Mm-hmm. Like if you put, if you replace all our bones with titanium or something. So I mean, the thing to look at would be the bat, which is the one flying mammal. Oh, okay. Forgot that. <laughs> <laughs> Can't forget about bats. Yeah. So, like, could you make a bat that's just the like, size of a human? Yes. Exactly. I doubt it, in part because I think that if you could, it would exist. Right. And there isn't even anything really close. Like, you don't get bats larger than... Or, let me... I could Google this. What is the largest... How large is the largest bat? So, the wingspan of the largest bat is 1.5 meters it's the flying fox 1.5 yeah that sounds pretty big how much does it weigh up to wait what up to 1.4 kilograms 3.1 pounds yeah that's not a lot Okay, so the Indian flying fox has a maximum weight of 1.6 kilograms, or 3.5 pounds. And the great flying fox has a max weight of a little less than that, 3.2 pounds. So yeah, it's all in that range. Yeah, so mostly wing. Yeah. So... Bats clearly are built very differently than humans. Yeah. And in order for a human to fly, well, we could calculate this, but we're not going to. You need a very large wingspan. Right? Yeah. Yeah, like very, very large. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that answers my question. But the description of the banshee does fit with this. So this is how Moist describes the physical attributes of a banshee, 
but he's clearly has one thing in mind. So he says, don't attack the chest. The flight muscles there are like armor. They're not strong, but they've got sinews like steel cables, and the long reach of those arm bones will mean it'll clap your silly head right off. But their necks slap easily if you can get inside their reach, and they have to shut their eyes when they scream. So basically, they're like very skinny with sinewy muscles and long, long wings. Gotcha. So perhaps like it's not plausible, but he does account for the fact that you need to have certain characteristics in order to fly. So if there were more flying squirrels in the world, would there be benches? Would there be... No. <laughs> I, don't, I, like, I don't know how far back in the evolutionary tree it took for bats to evolve wings, but I guess supposing that one branch produced a variety of winged species in, in the bat, it would be possible for that to happen in another uh, branch of the mammal line mm -hmm. like we'd be starting from scratch like we don't have a common winged ancestor with bats or something like that right so yeah i think i think bats have had like a much much longer time to evolve wings than we have to like evolve our brains yeah sure Makes sense. And, I, and I'm just trying to think, of like, maybe, like, how long would it take for humans to evolve wings? Long time. Yeah. Very, very long time. <laughs> and in what conditions? Anyway. Well, I mean, there were winged dinosaurs. Yeah, but... They were not mammals. They are not mammals. They are birds the only surviving dinosaurs are now known today as birds okay right so what i'm hearing is yes it's possible to have a banshee <laughs> <laughs> if things went slightly differently mm, maybe okay i'll take it <laughs> i say maybe because like yes like a lot of evolution is like very circumstantial and could have gone different ways which we see based off of like observed speciation events where some environmental catastrophe happens that splits a population and then they go different ways mm -hmm. um, but I still just can't imagine what types of environmental pressures would have led to the very costly evolutionary trajectory of a great ape evolving wings. Gotcha. It's possible. That's all I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Do you wish that you were a flying flying squirrel hunter? No. Okay. Mostly because of what happened to Mr. Grile. Yeah, that was not a great fate. I'd love to fly. Yeah. 
So does that wrap up your section? I think so. Okay. Oh, and uh, one more thing before we go. Last week, I claimed that the unification of the electro-weak and strong forces had been proven observationally. This is called a Graham Unified Theory, and that's not true. It has not been proven observationally, though we are looking for it in terms of such things as proton decay or magnetic monopoles or neutrino oscillations. So, yeah, just wanted to correct that. Let the record stand. Yes. Grand unified theories are not proven to exist yet. Yeah, so that was our take uh, on some of the science in Terry Pratchett's novel, Going Postal. And thank you for listening.